Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a recently graduated PhD from Yale University, where I studied planetary system dynamics. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a pre-doctoral fellow at the Center for Computational Astrophysics, where I study transients and their host galaxies. You're listening to Episode 53. Lethargic lads and laddies, also pronounced ladies. <laughs> <laughs> I think most people pronounce it ladies. <laughs> or lassies, but you know. Or lassies. Laddies. <laughs> In astrophysics, there is a lot of flashy, spectacular, high-energy stuff that is going on all the time that we hear about often in the news because it's, you know, cool and flashy from the jets of star formation to the explosions of older stars and rapidly rotating lighthouses that are pulsars. There is even an entire field of astrophysics that's called high-energy astrophysics, and that's specifically devoted to all of these high-energy phenomena. But we wanted today to give a special nod to some of those objects in space that are just, you know, kind of taking it easy and that are chilling out and maybe slowing down a little bit. The steady cruisers, the behind-the-scenes heroes. The so-called all-reliables of astrophysics. You inspire us all. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, since today we're talking about our low-energy heroes, I wanted to begin with some intro questions and get us moving with some background. But not, not moving too quickly, right? Yeah, it's a slow morning for us here. <laughs> yeah, it's like before the cup of coffee. Exactly. <laughs> so to kick us off, what are the different metrics that we can use to determine whether an object in space is considered more or less lethargic? It's a very technical term. <laughs> Lethargy? Yes. <laughs> Being on the side of observational phenomena, I think of the peak of the spectral energy distribution combined with the spectral index of the energy emitted by that object, which can tell us something about kind of like the characteristic signal. Alex, can you remind us what a spectral energy distribution is? Yeah, spectral energy distribution is really similar. The units are a bit different from a spectrum, but you can think of it as a spectrum. It's how much energy is emitted by that object at different frequencies or wavelengths. Thanks. Okay. So if an object emits predominantly high-energy radiation, X-rays, gamma rays, and the like, then it's less lethargic. So you can think of like a gamma-ray burst. And this is probably obvious, but a lot of the high-energy phenomena that you think of are both high- and low-energy events. They emit both, but of course, I think when you are thinking of more lethargic events, you're thinking of the things that characteristically emit only low-energy signals. It's interesting. I didn't think about it from a spectral point of view. I was thinking about it in terms of maybe spin or accretion. Hmm. The astrobite I'm going to present today is about solar activity, so I'll elaborate more on that later. But I was thinking more about physical effects, not spectral. So that's an interesting approach. It's so dynamical of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So orbital energy versus flux. Right. right. Yeah. And they're related, but not obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So when you think of low energy astrophysics, what usually comes to mind for you? So what would you think of as the opposite of high energy astrophysics and what kinds of objects in space would you think fall in that category? This right here, does this count as low energy astrophysics? <laughs> what, we're doing right now? what do you mean? <laughs> I have a coffee in front of me. <laughs> Well, okay, so for a second, let's stick with radiation. <laughs> from the transient side, I would think of, for example, millimeter emission from stellar flares that's been discovered in just the past few years with instruments traditionally used to study the CMB. So that's mm. low energy radiation. But that's still in transient studies, right? So if you think of the underlying physics, then low energy, I think of objects at the lowest end of the spectrum in terms of something like temperature, density, or velocity. And actually, I looked up coldest thing in the universe. <laughs> and <laughs> you'd think this would be some cop-out answer or something created in the lab or something. And we have created millikelvin materials on Earth. But <laughs> I found actually a couple different articles that said it's the boomerang nebula. Hmm. Oh. Which which was very surprising what? to me because it's just an object. So it's not just the vacuum of space. There's a specific nebula that's even, well, it's probably not colder, right? Yeah, there's some question of like temperature <laughs> is average thermal motion of particles. And when you have very, very few particles, then what does temperature really mean? So in like the vacuum of space, then temperature is a little bit different from the temperature of the boomerang nebula. But this article was arguing that the Boomerang Nebula is a set of bipolar outflows of matter ejected from a central star, and it's currently sitting at 1 degree Kelvin, mm. or negative 460 degrees Fahrenheit, which is very cold. But it would not be the coldest thing, right? Because we can create much colder in the lab. It's just the coldest natural thing. Right, exactly. It's also the coldest thing in space naturally occurring that we've detected. So the fact that all these articles were sensationalizing like the coldest thing in the absolute universe was so surprising to me. This is a star? No, this is matter outflowing from a central star. And the argument is the mass loss rate of that central star is so high that this material is being ejected at an incredible rate and the massive expansion causes the rapid cooling of the surrounding material as it's being ejected. And that allows it to cool down to almost absolute zero, but not quite. Wow. That's really neat. Wow. That is pretty cool. Yeah, it's wild. It's a pretty picture too. Mm. Yeah, you should take a look at it. Mm, we should nice. sonify it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know when you're done. <laughs> you know, my, my first thought in this question was to think of things that we'd observe in the radio, but it's kind of ironic that actually some of the highest energy objects are observed mm. and detected in the radio, like active galactic nuclei. Mm -hmm. It's not that they are only emitting radio, but radio is the easiest way to see what's going on. It's kind of funny. But yeah, I, I, it's a good, good fact on that nebula, Alex. I was imagining maybe like an, uh, a molecular cloud, right? Something that'll condense into a star it needs to be extremely low. So there's no thermal pressure that would halt the gravitational collapse. Would the boomerang nebula collapse again into a star? Is that possible? You would need to have enough mass for it to be gravitationally bound and then yeah. collapse. And at the rate at which it's expanding, it's not clear that it would ever become bound again. Mm. The other thought I had was regions of neutral hydrogen emit in the 21 centimeter spin flip transition where the electron and proton alternate their spin axes about every 10 million years. So it has to be so low energy that a collection of those particles are detectable, even though they're only individually emitting every 10 million years. So maybe that's low energy astrophysics. Yeah, I can see that as well. 
Seems very low energy. Okay, so we mentioned both flux and gravitational energy as a way of thinking about the level of energy of a given system. So physically, what actually causes objects in space to start slowing down? And you can think about this both in terms of gravitational slowing down as well as slowing down in terms of how many gamma rays are emitted or whatever other metrics. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely took this question in the way of dynamical slowing down. But emission of radiation is a loss of energy. And in some ways, that energy will cause the object to slow down in its rotation. But the ones that I thought of as a little bit more intense from a dynamical perspective would be torque, either a magnetic torque or a gravitational torque. In terms of a magnetic torque, right, you can imagine a number of different geometries, but a star with differential rotation where different layers are rotated at different speeds will create magnetic torque from the dynamo that will actually slow it down. And you can have the same effect happen in highly magnetic star systems with debris disks or with circumstellar disks where the torque from the magnetic field of the star actually slows down the rotation of the accretion disk. In a gravitational torque, we've talked about tidal forces before. If you have your primary with an orbiting secondary and the secondary revolves slower than the primary rotates, the primary will slow down. So this is what's happening to the Earth-Moon system. Earth rotates in one day, but the Moon revolves in one month. So the torque of the Moon on the Earth is slowing the Earth's rotation down. Mm -hmm. And you can have a similar effect with rings. When you have rings and satellites in a planetary system, you get what's called Lindblad torques, which has the result of slowing down the primary as well. That was a very thorough answer. Thank you. I thought in terms of Newton's first law, and you can think of if something is changing its motion, then it's because of some external force that is causing energy to be dissipated. So there could be myriad different examples of that. You mentioned a lot of them, Will. But Milena, you also alluded to this kind of euphemism slowing down as some underlying physical change, which is not necessarily slower than the previous state of the system. I think that's a bad analogy, personally. Because there are lots of physical systems that change in their evolution pretty dramatically, but they can still be doing lots of things and could still be very high energy, but potentially the emission is just different than we had seen it before. So, for example, if you think of galaxies being quenched, we think of them as slowing down in their life, but of course there's plenty of high energy activity going on among the older stars. They can explode or merge, things like that, and of course all of that is still lots of activity for the galaxy itself. So you mentioned even as objects are quote-unquote slowing down, although maybe that's not the right analogy in all cases, they are still sort of actively evolving. Even a star that has already exploded is continuing to evolve in some way. So I was thinking about this and I was wondering what objects in space are evolving the most slowly but are still continuing to evolve. So they're not just static at all, mm -hmm. but they're moving towards some separate state. Yeah, it's interesting. Here are a list of a few things I thought of that might fit this qualification. Uh, main sequence M stars, mm -hmm. right? The smallest possible M dwarf could have a trillion year time on the main sequence or longer. Uh, neutron stars. Solo white dwarfs, if they're in a binary, all bets are off. But if they're alone, <laughs> they just kind of gradually cool. Mm -hmm. uh, supermassive black holes, but that could get murky. And then elliptical galaxies, right? They're not star forming. Why could supermassive black holes get murky? There could be a galactic merger. And then mm. 
it's not such a slow evolution anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, even as objects are losing energy, there are still ways that they can have more injected into the system. Right. I mean, of these, my bet is on the M-Stars, because Trillion Years, we're just hanging out. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think that gives us a nice kind of overview setting the scene of slow, lethargic types of objects in astrophysics. <laughs> So now it's time for Will to tell us about the sun and whether or not it's having a slow morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually really sunny out, so not a slow morning at all for, for us here. Good, good. So the astrobite I'm presenting is called, Is the Sun a Lazy Star? And this is written by Clarissa Duo, and the paper is by Timo Reinhold and others, published in Science in 2020. So this is actually a pretty short but pretty impactful paper. The topic of this paper is solar activity, and this is really a measure of the intensity of the sun's magnetic field as it varies along the 11-year solar cycle. And we've known about the solar cycle for hundreds of years because it tracks sunspots, which are dark regions on the surface of the sun that come and go on this 11-year cycle. And so now we know that sunspots are actually regions of really strong magnetic fields that emerge from deep within the sun, and then as the magnetic field becomes twisty and bunched up, push through to the surface. They're typically colder than other areas on the surface of the sun too, right? They are, because the magnetic pressure balances the thermal pressure in those regions, yeah. That's actually a really popular problem in one of our intro to space physics classes. So when the sun's magnetic fields become really twisty, it can suddenly release the pent-up energy in the form of a solar flare. And the flare is a burst of radiation, so it goes in all directions, it's detectable in the whole solar system, but it's followed by, often, a coronal mass ejection, which is exactly what it sounds like. The sun just spits out a chunk of corona of hot plasma, but that's directed in one specific direction. So a solar flare, not that good for a planet, but certainly not a big deal. Uh, a powerful coronal mass ejection can be seriously lethal. And there were some recorded events in history. And if we had a bad CME these days, it would be devastating to global interconnectivity. In fact, weirdly enough, the last solar maximum around 2014 was really weak. So there's actually a lot more telecommunications built on the Earth's surface than there used to be the last time we had a serious solar maximum. And in fact, people are very worried that we're overdue for a very serious CME. So it's something to keep in mind. So do these CMEs occur pretty regularly on the sun at just maybe lower levels such that they're not lethal to us? Or do we just not see them at all? They do occur at lower levels. Mm -hmm. The tricky thing with the CME is it's impossible to detect unless you're in the path of it. It's very difficult to know that it's actually happening. You can know about the flare because the flare goes in all directions. But detecting the CME is actually really hard. And getting good measurements on it, you have to be in the path, which has happened many times with different spacecraft. But again, it, it's rare. Did this paper study coronal mass ejections from the sun? Well... No, because you can't get good data on that, and there's no chance of comparing it to other stars. So the way that they actually tried to see if the sun is lethargic is by looking at photometric variability. Kepler has a great suite of photometric variability for over 100,000 stars in the Milky Way. And so it's not directly related to the magnetic field, but it is correlated. The variability does change with magnetic activity. So when the sun is more magnetically active, it will have a greater variability in its output. 
what they did is they had this great set of Kepler data. They cross-reference it with Gaia data to identify the stars that have properties the most similar to the sun, like similar temperatures, similar gravities, rotation periods, and so on, as much as they could. And then they compared the stars from Kepler to the sun, and they had to model how Kepler would see the sun to be able to make those data sets jive. And so in order to simulate the sun as seen by Kepler, they had to use 140 years of solar data, which I think is really cool, actually. So this is kind of in many ways historical because the Kepler data is not seeing a cross-section of individual stars. It's seeing just a single time of many stars. So you sum that all up, you can compare it to the sun over a longer period of time. Okay, so you're saying they took the net activity of the sun for 140 years and then they added up a bunch of two-ish year segments from Kepler to make 140 years worth of other stars too? It's more that the other stars are filling out the distribution of possibilities. Mm. But if you look at the sun just today, it's going to be impossible to determine what its range of variability is. Right. So because each star, yeah, only has one point, but when you add up 100,000, you get a pretty clear picture of what sun-like stars can do. So you want to see where the sun fits within that. You want a longer range. So does this mean that they would only be able to characterize the distribution of photometric variability across the observing time of Kepler for each of those systems they're comparing it to? In theory, yes. But because they're all at a different stage of evolution, that's not a big deal. It's not like it was only five years worth of the stars in the Milky Way, right? Because some of them are highly evolved and some of them will be younger and some of them will have more magnetic activity. You know, so when you have 100,000, you pretty much get the full distribution of what there is out there. And the question is, if you look at the sun today and it's a bit of a weaker day today, you'd think, oh, well, the sun's lethargic. But if over 140 years, it might move around that distribution. But there are minima and maxima associated with the sun's activity that have a longer period than the timeline of observations, right? And you wouldn't be able to detect those variations? Then 140 years? For the other stars. Yeah, it's possible. The sun had its maunder minimum for like a few hundred years a while back. Is that not included in this data set? So we're looking at just the sun in more recent time? That's true. The data that they have does not go back that far. Okay. All we have is sunspot data going back before 140 years, but we have photometry since 140 years. So they couldn't use that, unfortunately. However, there's an interesting thing, which is there are detections of isotopes in rocks on Earth that are created by solar cosmic rays. So The sun emits cosmic rays, high energy particles, they smack into these rocks and create isotopes that are kind of locked into the rock. So this gives us 9,000 years of solar activity estimates. Wow. And actually, over 9,000 years, the sun hasn't changed that much. The 140 is a good representation for the 9,000. But that's, I mean, come on, it could be changing over millions, right? We have no way of knowing that. So that's one of the big limitations these authors found. Okay, last question, and then I really want to get into the results of the paper. (laughs) I know when looking for exoplanets, sunspots are a potential contaminant because you see dimming and brightening of a star as it orbits. Is it the other way around in this case? The exoplanets could be a potential contaminant of looking for variations (laughs) in the properties of the star itself? I don't think that's an issue for this. I think that, of course, it is possible, but I think it's much easier to detect the transits than it is to detect sunspots rotating on stars. I think that's much, much harder. 
Hmm. Okay. Right. I would think the transits would take little enough time that you could just cut out that data somehow. But also, most of the stars aren't going to have transits around them. Sure. Sure. Okay. You could also just, if any star has a confirmed exoplanet, take it out. Drop but I it guess from the you wouldn't know if they're unconfirmed planets. Okay. <laughs> Will, what did they find? You want to yeah, hear the results? They, find by comparing <laughs> yes. <to> the sun? <laughs> they found that sun like stars have about five times higher activity than the sun. So the sun is a pretty lazy star. Wow. Is that why we exist? It's a possibility. <laughs> it's possible that this changes with age, that at some ages the sun is very low activity and then maybe it becomes higher or it starts higher and then it decreases, mm. which could be good, right? This could be a piece of how life formed on Earth, and it could have coincided the sun's changing activity with major geological events. But the reality is we don't have a good understanding of the dynamo of the sun, the internal rotation that gives rise to its magnetic field. Interesting. So we don't understand that in the sun even, which means we definitely don't understand it in other systems. Yeah, it's incredibly hard to study. Are there things we're doing to try to figure that out? Is Parker Solar Probe or something going to help with that? Yeah, it is. It absolutely is going to get better data to understand the internal workings of the sun. But even still, it's going to come down to modelers. You said these systems were five times more active on average than the sun? It's actually the median, but yeah. <laughs> the median and the distribution. Okay. So I was wondering how much overlap there was with the distribution and the properties of the sun, and if there was some subset that was similar to the sun that they could study in detail to learn more about what makes those systems less active. Hmm. Well, the only subpopulations they talked about were stars with periodic variability and non-periodic variability. And the sun fell into the non-periodic category if it were observed by Kepler. And I think this is partially due to limitations of observation and not necessarily physical difference. But they were saying maybe there are different physical properties of these two populations because the non-periodic one, like the sun, is a little bit less active, I think they found. So what does the distribution of activity look like for all of the other stars that they looked at? Like, is it kind of distributed as a Gaussian or is it are most of the stars in one specific bin and the sun is kind of far off somewhere else? Or how does it fit into the broader distribution? To my eye, the distribution looks Gaussian, but they did not model it as such. It's just an empirical distribution. The mm -hmm. sun is not so far off to the side that it's crazy. I mean, it's it's within kind of a reasonable chunk of the distribution, but it would certainly fall on the lower activity side, the far lower activity mm -hmm. side. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't want to try to guess how many sigma it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Just, they didn't say and I don't really want to guess. Sure. Yeah. Sure. If I could eyeball the statistical significance of my data by looking at it, <laughs> I'd have a lot more papers out. <laughs> I'm just feeling, I'm feeling a four sigma right here. I don't know. It feels pretty significant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Will, for that excellent slow and now it's time for everyone's favorite segment of the episode. Will has an anecdote. <laughs> I love this part. The, the timing of this is a little weird now because it's just like Will talking continuously. <laughs> I'll have to shut up in the second half of the episode. 
on theme, but not related to astronomy, I came across this phenomenon a while back. There's this musical piece that John Cage composed for organ called As Slow as Possible. Have you guys heard of this? <laughs> no. No. It's pretty funny. I mean, the instructions are to play as slow as possible. And the current record holder for one person playing continuously was just set in the last month at 24 hours. So someone started at midnight, ended at midnight. And, you know, you have like 30-minute rests and then you hold a note for an hour, so on and so forth. But the record when it's completed is going to be a 640-year-long piece played at a <laughs> church in Helberstadt, Germany. And it's, it's pretty ridiculous because it's like every three or four years they change the note. How far into that 600-year period are we? About 20. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> how do you even keep a note that long on a single instrument? An organ is really the only thing that can do it, right? Aside from a computerized instrument. So they mm. just have, you know, the bellows just keep blowing air continuously through the organ. It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. They built it just for this purpose. And they, <laughs> they like take the pipes and they replace and add pipes as the notes change. And there's like a ceremony. And then I think at each ceremony, the audience is asked to hold their applause until the end of the piece. <laughs> That's pretty good. And it's somebody's job just to play the notes. I right, presumably like two were the notes. I mean, they're like sandbags holding down the keys yeah, or okay. something. <laughs> Imagine if that was your job, like stand there with your finger on the key. Someone like swaps out every other day or something. That's what astronomy feels like some days. <laughs> All right, should we do the space sound? Now the second favorite part of the episode. <laughs> oh, yes. It's time for the sleepiest space sound. The slow moving stars and planets and galaxies. <laughs> <laughs> I love my planets. <laughs> All right, here we go. Okay. What do you think it is? Very orchestral. Yeah. Definitely something rotating. And the sonification is done in the rotation, maybe like a fixed point and the thing is rotating around it. If I had to guess, I would say like the rotation of a spiral galaxy or something. Huh. Interesting. Okay. What do you think, Will? It sounds like it's infalling. So maybe an infalling object or a binary, something like that. And you went anti-thematic, and it's actually <laughs> high energy. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know I love to mix it up. <laughs> I'd say Will was pretty close. So this is a sonification of the Milky Way galaxy merging with Andromeda. Ooh. Oh. Yeah, so this is going to happen in about four or five billion years. And so because this isn't happening right now, this is a sonification of simulated data. So we don't actually mm -hmm. have data of this occurring. And what you're hearing, uh, I believe, is the light as the galaxies are approaching from each side. And then they are orbiting each other before merging. Hmm. The sonification was made actually as part of this astronomy show called A Dark Tour of the Universe. 
that was designed for the blind and visually impaired. Oh, cool. And it was created and led by a fellow of the European Southern Observatory, Chris Harrison. And this particular sonification was made by him, as well as Florent Renaud, Michael Allen, and Kim Jones. So it seems like a really cool idea. It's from the Data Sonification Archive, and it's really pretty. That's a beautiful yeah. sonification, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for bringing the sonification to us, Melina. You've got it. <laughs> Faster than I expected, but still beautiful. Yeah, you know, it's a very slow process. <laughs> so it's moving at a snail pace right now, but we'll get there. Got it. Got it. <laughs> All right, so Alex, I think it's your turn to dominate the stage <laughs> to tell us if <laughs> Did I change that wording. <laughs> yeah, wait, what? Is that what I'm doing? <laughs> well, that's what Will was saying he was doing this whole time. It's just funny because my anecdote didn't break up my section. It just added to it. That's okay. That's okay. Every episode could use more Will. You're the cowbell of this show. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a bad thing. We we love to see it. <laughs> and to hear it. <laughs> All right. So, Alex, time to take the stage <laughs> to tell us about some galaxies that are starting to slow down in their old age. Right on. This astrobite is called The Messy Pasts of Dead Ultra-Diffuse Galaxies by Katie Proctor, and it's based on a paper that came out last year by Benavides and others. And it's called The Messy Pasts, but actually it's a nice, clean result. Wraps up in a bow. I really liked this uh, astrobite and the research done. So historically, we've only been able to detect the biggest, closest, brightest things in the universe, but as our technology's gotten more sensitive, we've detected objects at the tail ends of these distributions. So objects that are fainter, further away, and not like what we'd expect. And one object that falls into this category is ultra-diffuse galaxies, or UDGs. They were discovered in 1984, and they're the faintest type of galaxy that we know about. So they're low surface brightness. Typically, they have stellar masses comparable to dwarf galaxies, but they're the size of around the Milky Way. How is that possible? That's a great question. <laughs> People don't know. People have no idea how these things form. What we do know is that just based on the discoveries that we've had since the 80s, if you find an ultra-diffuse galaxy in a cluster or a galaxy group, it's probably going to be red and quenched, so it barely forms any new stars. But the opposite is true for ultra-diffuse galaxies found in isolation, which are usually blue and actively forming new stars. Do we know why that is? We don't. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact... In the past few years, astronomers have discovered a few ultra-diffuse galaxies in isolation that are red and quenched. Hmm. So the question is, how did they get there? What shut off their star formation? Who hurt them? <laughs> right? Why are these oh. objects so different from the typical ultra-diffuse galaxies you'd find in isolation? And that's what these authors sought out to investigate. And in this show, we've talked so many times about how you can't really unravel the evolutionary history of one particular object so you consolidate lots of different objects at different times in their evolution and try to piece it together that way. It turns out, in this paper, they did the first thing. They used the incredibly high-resolution simulation called Illustrious TNG, mm. and they took a 50-megaparsec cube box of space that was simulated, and they found all the galaxies in that simulation with the mass of dwarf galaxies, but in the top 5% of galaxy sizes within each mass bin. So they say these are the ultra-diffuse galaxies in our simulation. And as you'd expect, they find this bimodality in the simulations themselves in G minus R color. So some are really red, some are really blue. 
and they took the red population and just wound back the clock in the simulation for all the ones that they found in isolation. So in this case, they actually can trace in detail the evolutionary history of these isolated, red, quenched, lazy galaxies. When you say that they rewound it, do you mean they just sort of looked at what happened earlier in the simulation as opposed to they actually tried to integrate backwards in time? Correct. Yeah, the former. So they looked at previous snapshots of that simulation to track what was going on with those same galaxies Mm -hmm. earlier on in their evolution. Cool. And the authors found that in every case, the red ultra-diffuse galaxies in isolation had close passes with galaxy groups or dark matter halos. Hmm. Hmm. So when you say close pass, what does that mean? How near would it have had to get? That's a great question. Close pass here, that phrase is parameterized in terms of what's called a splashback radius, which is just a way to estimate the characteristic (laughs) size of a galaxy cluster or halo, right? So they propose that these are splashback galaxies where the galaxy falls into a cluster and then splashes back out of it again. You can think of this like an impact parameter in lots of other subfields of astronomy. And so the thinking is that these galaxies have a close approach to a galaxy group, their gas and dark matter is tidally stripped, so the tidal forces of the cluster pull that material off of the galaxy, and that leaves the galaxy with no gas left to form any new stars. So it leaves the cluster, but the damage is already done, and we see it as red, unable to form new stars. Having lost most of its dark matter, how does it stay bound? That's a good question. My thinking is that it still has enough dark matter to be gravitationally bound. But actually, you allude to, I think this is an allusion to, and a really interesting question is like, does this have implications for what makes them ultra diffuse to begin with? Mm. Because even those objects are loosely bound together. And this research is not able to comment on that. So it explains how isolated ultra diffuse galaxies become lazy But they're ultra-diffuse before they have these interactions, so it doesn't explain how they become ultra-diffuse to begin with. And this is still an open question, and we would need higher-res simulations to really wind back the clock to the very earliest moments in the formation of the galaxies to answer that. Hmm. They can't simulate that? Maybe they could, in like a a dedicated simulation. But because this was an outlier for a very large-scale simulation, it wasn't the purpose of illustrious TNG. So potentially you'd need isolated higher resolution simulations of this particular phenomenon to see whether you would get this kind of formation at early times and what would cause it. Is it a matter of computational power? Is it that OWASP just can't handle doing all those things at once? Or is it a grid size issue? What's the reason it can't be simulated? Or do we just not know anything about it? So the physics is not accurate? Well, it was surprising that they found the ultra-diffuse galaxies in the simulation themselves, right? Which suggests that something in our simulation is encoded well enough to reproduce these observations. Mm -hmm. But in terms of learning about how they form in detail, I think you would need just really high cadence uh, simulations at the earliest moments in the formation, which was beyond the computational power of illustrious TNG, which... Mm. Illustrious TNG was just to make a really, really big box of lots of different galaxies for lots of different studies. But this is more of like an in-depth, detailed study of one particular type of galaxy, Mm. which would be the focus of a different work. Okay. I see. That's pretty neat, though, that they appeared. It's impressive. Yeah. Agreed. I was about to give basically a reiterated back to you one sentence summary. And then I realized I think we're at that point anyway, so I could just ask you to do it. (laughs) 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 So can you give us a one sentence summary of what the key results are from this paper? When it comes to the social dynamics of galactic astronomy, isolated, ultra-diffuse galaxies are the introspective ones, run down to exhaustion by the group and needing to be alone to recharge. 
Wow. That's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> they were run down by the group. This is like my fourth iteration of a one-sentence summary, and all the earlier ones were significantly sadder. So <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is as optimistic as I could get with it. What about you, Will? What's your one-sentence summary about the sun? Based on the available information, it appears the sun is lazy. But this actually might be a good thing for life on Earth. And so I hope the sun keeps procrastinating for many millions of years. <laughs> Give us all something to strive for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. How's everyone's energy level? Lethargic. Are you a high energy astrophysicist right now? <laughs> yeah. Feeling good. <laughs> all right. So I think it's time for some discussion questions then. So systems are always becoming more entropic and that they're becoming more disorderly over time. Stars are radiating away energy. Energy is being dissipated. So do all of the objects in high-energy astrophysics eventually become a part of low-energy astrophysics? If we accept the fate of the universe is heat death, right, where everything becomes cold and spread out. Do you accept it, Will? I actually am skeptical of it. I think that if we lived maybe 6 billion years ago, predicting the rise and dominance of dark energy would be impossible. And therefore, there could be new physics that is impossible to predict. And so we're 13.8 billion years in the universe predicting what will happen a trillion years from now, considering we couldn't predict what would have happened now if we lived half the time the universe existed, is kind of a ridiculous enterprise. So you can accept that under our current model, the heat death is the end result. But come on, that's very limited. So yes, I guess in that sense, if you do accept that, then yeah, everything does become low energy. I would say that in a given category of object, things go from higher energy to lower energy. But if something jumps from one category to another, it changes the underlying physics of what's going on. And then you could potentially have like a very quick spike in the type of energy that it's able to emit. So if something goes from a star to a black hole, then that black hole could have relativistic events as a result that could emit very high energy radiation. And in fact, if you have very late in the history of the universe, you have pretty much only black holes and no stars anymore then you could potentially get some very, very high energy signals, but then you're dealing with a different type of system, right? And potentially those black holes as they emit radiation would get less and less energetic, but that's still like a different category of object. Right. Right. I guess in a way this ends up being a question of what is the fate of the universe? Right. There's a really beautiful simulation on YouTube, maybe this is the time to plug it, that's a set of models for what we think is going to happen, and it evolves out to very, very far in the future. Of course, it's highly speculative, but it's a beautiful movie. Oh, send that. I would be interested to see it. Cool. It's like Ultra HD or something. Yeah, it's mesmerizing. Cool. I hadn't really been thinking about black holes so much, but I know, for example, in binary star systems or systems with planets, they sort of tend towards these circular orbits and these low energy states is what they end up pushing towards. But I guess that you wouldn't necessarily always push towards the lowest energy state for, well, you would have a different object category. And so what counts as the lowest energy state right. would be different right. if you go from star to black hole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think within a given category, usually an object slows down both in terms of its gravitational energy and its energy radiated, right? Or can you think of any counterexamples to that? I can think of only one, and that's pulsar spin-ups. But then it's a question of what's an isolated system, and we still don't fully know how glitches happen, but it's some kind of avalanche process that builds up, and then very quickly it increases its spin. But like kind of the broad distribution of those objects, if you eliminate from consideration these anomalous spin-ups, 
which I don't think are that common, you would get kind of the traditional pulsar spin down as it loses energy and radiates away. What is a pulsar spin-up? We had an astrobite on it that we presented long, long ago on this show. Mm. And it's where the rate of the pulsar's rotation decreases very gradually. And then in like a really sudden burst, the rate increases. And it's some quantum mechanical phenomenon on the surface of the pulsar neutron star crust does something complex that I don't remember. But anyway, you get a really sudden spin up and it's actually something reflecting the physics of the system as opposed to some observational bias or something. Oh, cool. That is pretty cool. Weird, but cool. All right, that concludes episode 53, Lethargic Lads and Laddies slash Ladies. <laughs> Do you want to hear more spectacular high and low energy episodes? You can find all of them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, and Audible. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Are we still recording? Should we stop? Keep it going just for the fun of it. Mm-hmm.